Welcome. This is the Life Habits Podcast series, and my name is Carl Vredenberg. This is the series that helps you to learn new habits to optimize your life in order to stay sane in this crazy world. This is episode number 42, and the topic for today is sleep, food, mood, and exercise. And I'm delighted to have with me today Marie-José Salvachar. Welcome, Marie-José. Well, thank you, Carol. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. You know, I want to just give a little bit of background for the listeners with regard to what uh, Marie-José is all about and what her background and her credentials are. She has a bachelor's in organizational behavior. She's got a master's in applied positive psychology. She's a certified personal trainer certified nutrition and wellness consultant, and she's worked in six countries over the past two years, the US, Canada, France, UK, Australia, and Japan. And she originates in the country that I am currently sitting in, Canada, and she is currently in the United States of America. So good list of credentials there. And anybody that looks through that list of credentials also realizes that Marie-José is somebody that pulls together a variety of aspects of life together in an integrated fashion. And I'm delighted to go and talk about the topics that we're going to talk about today because we normally talk about a single topic and focus on that one and then we get on to another episode with another topic and what I'm particularly delighted about today is Marie-José's approach to really integrating a variety of aspects of life together because each of these elements do in fact work together. So I wonder if maybe we could get started, Marie-José, on that concept, and maybe you can introduce that to us. Of course. I appreciate, Carl, that you emphasized the integration of the concepts because this is really what I'm after. I do work with sleep, food, mood, and exercise, and I say it that way because it's an, a simplification that makes it easier for everyone to remember, but it's really about rest in general, nutrition, uh, emotions, engagement, and physical activity. But sleep, food, mood, and exercise makes it easier. While I find these elements interesting, it is their interactions that bring us sometimes a hard time and also solutions. So this is where I really want to concentrate my work and where I help my clients the most. With the interactions between sleep, food, mood, and exercise, we can create a lifestyle that is healthier, more fulfilling, and more productive. So I link health And by health, I do mean mental and physical. I link health with productivity, especially in the workplace. So that's my whole approach. That's excellent. And you, I noticed you also uh, consistent with the type of way that we do these podcasts have also brought along some quotes. I think you have an overview one as well. I don't know if it would be appropriate to share with the listeners now. Absolutely. Thank you for leading in. The, the quote that I would like to be like the overarching theme for today is from Gandhi. And it says, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. I love that quote. I think it is very appropriate. Unfortunately, a lot of people at work don't have enough harmony. Business organizations don't always make room for that. You know, we are so centered on the bottom line that we forget sometimes to bring that those values that we have, or we forget to bring in care for the individual, the human being behind the worker. Um, and I think that it is very important to take the whole person into consideration because we do get better quality work out of the full approach rather than out of the 
work only, I just care about your tasks approach. I love the quote, too, and drawing attention to the importance, as you say, of bringing all these things together. I think we often look for the silver bullet, you know, a single solution that all you really need to do is diet, you know, or all you really need to do is sort of get your perspective together in terms of your psychological focus on a particular topic. And I think what you're saying here and the kinds of things we're going to be going through today is that you really need to do maybe something that's a little harder. And that is to bring all those pieces together because you can also sometimes get too much into your head, you know, where all you, you know all the right things to do, but you're not doing them. You need to be able to actually flow through and make sure that all these things pull together. So a, a great context for, I think, the discussion that we're going to be going through now. So shall we start down that the list? And I was delighted again, too, that you put together a top 10 list of, um, yes. of items to go through. So go ahead. Absolutely. So number one, a fulfilling home life is good business. People tend to think that, oh, the longer I work, the more time I devote to my job, I will be able to produce more. It's actually not working out that way. There's been a group of researchers in France that have shown how the stress we live at home spills over to stress at work and vice versa. And so people say that when they are, and that's based on an opinion survey that was done in the U.S. in 2007, people say that when they are under high stress, their productivity is reduced. About 55% of people agree with that statement. So if the stress at home spills over to work and vice versa, and we know that stress reduces productivity, having a good home life will already be a good step in the right direction. And to prove that, there's been some research done by Gallup who shows that people who are most engaged at home are also part of the most productive work teams. It's almost as if once you get engaged in one domain of life, it's it's easier. It's like a capacity that is growing. Your ability to be engaged overall seems to grow. And so you're, you're becoming more productive at work. So w with regards to that, there's a quote again that I'd like to bring up here at this point. Carl, I think you'll enjoy that. This one is from Lee Colin. And he says, when people go to work, they don't leave their hearts at home. We may live in a high tech world, but leadership is a high touch job. Oh, I love that. That's a great one, again, to reinforce this point that you're making about that home life is part of your entire life. <laughs> Obviously, the experience at, at work is influenced by, you know, home life as well. So with regard to that, and I know that I think a lot of the other uh, items we're going to be talking about that will start to build in the the bigger picture story of ensuring that we are rounded individuals, that we do in fact have all aspects of our life in line. I'm wondering what kinds of elements of you know, home life would be key here, that we, we talk in general that the relationship is strong, as you've shown by these, uh, these survey results and the like. So we know that the, the relationship is strong and that it's important to have good business to also have a good you know, home life. Is there any advice uh, at this point or should we be going through the rest of these items first before we get to the notion of any specific insights that may be appropriate to share with regard to this? As we go along, we will discover more, but here's one that will not be mentioned later, and that's very important. It is to actually spend good time, good quality time with your loved ones. A lot of people tend to get home at night, uh, eat a quick bite on the go sometimes, and then just flick the TV on and keep changing the channels all evening. That is 
so counterproductive to their home life, to their relationships and to their work, you know, spending time with people, doing stuff with them, learning what they enjoy, getting actively engaged in activities with your kids or your spouse makes a big difference. I think that's great advice. And I think that the notion of actually engaging with whomever you are with in terms of, of home is, is what you're really getting at there. And I think a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, well, I spend time with my family. But yet if everybody is staring off in the same direction <laughs> at a TV <laughs> yes. you know, or whatever, then you're not really spending time or really quality time. It's really, I think, the key word that you used there was really engaged and really making sure that uh, you're actually getting some quality interaction uh, that you really actually enjoy because these are people that you want to be with <laughs> because you've planned your life that way. So, no, really good advice. Okay. That's right. Okay. You know, that's the uh, that's the deathbed test. And it's not a, a funny topic to bring up. But, you know, when you are on your deathbed, do you think you're going to say, oh, geez, I wish I had watched more TV? Or do you think you might say, oh, geez, I wish I had spent more time playing outside with my kids? I, I love it that you bring that up. That That's actually listeners of this series know that I say that quite regularly, actually. <laughs> that was one that uh, we talked about in episode one of the series. We started with that to start to get people to think about what was most important to them to do that exercise where you think, okay, let's work backwards from that. And then we've revisited that, I think, several times where we think back and say, okay, if we want to cut out work that or items that are on our list to, to be more efficient, you know, what kind of things, things do you make sure you don't cut out or you, in fact, you know, reinforce? It's, in fact, right. the things that come out of that exercise. So very, very good similar thinking there, Marie-Jose. <laughs> I think that uh, that's a real you know, popular one and one that I really take to heart myself too. Okay, why don't we move on to number two? Sure. Number two is that positive emotions make people more successful. We tend to think that it works the other way around. We tend to think that people who are successful are happier, but it actually, more and more studies is showing that it's the other way. If you are happy, if you do enjoy positive emotions on a consistent basis, this is when you're going to become more successful. By saying that, I am drawing on the research done by Barbara Fredrickson shows that when people experience at least three times more positive than negative emotions, the areas of their brain that are at work are not the same ones anymore. So when we are in a negative mind frame, when we are experiencing a lot of negative emotions, we're either in that fight or flight mode, or we're in a bit of a, you know, um, counterproductive mind frame if we're trying to open up and look for more solutions and be more innovative. It is with increased positive emotions that we can tap into those brain areas that bring about the increased creativity, the innovation capability, and more learning. So, of course, these are all things that are pertinent to the workplace, that are pertinent to problem solving. So, positive emotions are, are generating activity in the brain area that is more insightful, that allows us to be better decision makers. And that also was proven later on by more research that was done at Northwestern University that was published uh, in 2007. Um, Sheldon Cohen also at Carnegie Mellon uh, was able to show that we have a better immune function when we feel more positive. He showed that by injecting the virus of the cold into research participants' noses and then 
uh, monitoring over the next couple of days to see if they did indeed develop the cold. He kept them in a completely sanitized motel rooms for a full week and asked them to do a series of tasks like blowing their noses into Kleenexes and making sure that, you know, they either did produce mucus or not and uh, drawing a little blood and seeing how the immune response was working. And he showed that people who are most positive who do experience more positive emotions are less likely, I think it is 33% less likely, to develop the cold afterwards. So, of course, if you are less sick, and by the way, he showed people are less objectively sick and subjectively sick. In other words, people who are more positive are least likely to complain that they feel uh, congested or that their energy levels are low. So, of course, if you have better energy physically, uh, mentally, subjectively, and a bit objectively, you will be more productive. So feeling good is really not a soft topic. People in businesses tend to think it's mind over matter, right? It's feeling good is just soft. We don't need that. It is not soft. It is a hardwired reality. I think this is uh, really significant in several ways. One is that the research actually reinforcing some things that we suspected were the case, but it's great to see some really solid research that reinforces the importance and the validity of those kinds of uh, suspicions and insights. I think the other thing that that's interesting is that gets back to your first point that this also relates to you know the three to one you know ratio of positive to negative you know emotions that reinforces again the point that it's your entire life. So the time you spend at home, if you have incredibly negative home environment, then you're likely going to be less creative at work as well as at, at home. And so right across the board, you want to be optimizing for positive emotions. And I, I think the other one that you made a significant point about just that I just wanted to reinforce once again, is that there is a direct linkage, which is your overall thesis, your overall theme here. There's also a direct linkage between these variety of elements and systems. So the notion of the emotions having direct relation to the immune system here. Uh, the Sheldon Cohen work at Carnegie Mellon really showing that this isn't just a notion, as you say, of it being a soft concept, that this is also significantly one that is directly related to the biochemical elements of the overall body. And so there, here again, you're reinforcing that interaction. Exactly right. And here's how people can use this information. Positive emotions can be induced. So if you are a leader, you can try to start your meetings with something positive, something uplifting to get the creative juices of your team going. If you are an individual, you can try some interventions that have been proven to help increase positive emotions, such as taking on some random acts of kindness throughout the day or journaling on the high points of your day before you go to bed at night or just making a sincere effort to smile more and go out and interact with your loved ones like we've mentioned in the first number one of our top 10 list today. So these are interventions that you can try that have been proven successful for most people most of the time, and then it will help you be more successful ultimately. Yeah, that's really interesting. In fact, we did talk in this series in the past too about the variety of ways that we can induce more positive uh, emotion. You know, the one that you mentioned as well, even the notion of when you go and look in the mirror first thing in the morning to smile and to start any interaction you have with other people, if you're going to be providing feedback to start off with a positive 
view first, even if the primary focus of the feedback is going to be areas in which somebody can improve, for example. So I think this whole focus, and this is certainly one that I personally believe in and try to practice on a regular basis is to make as much of your life positive. It seems like a lot of people try to work against that uh, with a lot of the interactions that you have with people during a day. But I think this whole notion of still focusing on trying to make every interaction in all aspects of your life positive, which is entirely possible to do, it just requires the level of focus that you're mentioning here, Marie-José, and I think the research that you just showed reinforces the need to do that, that that's not just that you'll then feel a little bit better and you'll feel more positive, you'll also have all kinds of other ramifications as well that are positive. You bring up a very interesting point, Carl, that people uh, tend to not do these things or even work against these kind of ideas. And those who do will justify it by saying, well, I'm a realist. I don't want to smile if I'm not happy. Or why should I, you know, try to be Pollyanna? It's not businesslike and actually critical thinking is better if you want to analyze something. These kind of these kind of little sarcastic, very critical thought processes. But there's research that shows that if you are happy, you will smile, right? Mm -hmm. So your brain is going to say, oh, wow, this is good. Here's the reaction to good. It also works the other way around. If you smile, your brain is thinking, oh, something good must be happening because I am smiling. This is how it happens. So why fight something that happens naturally in the body? The physiological drives are stronger than our will. Sooner or later, they will win us over. So let's just manage them in a smart way so that everything else can be a little less effortful. Does that make sense? Makes great sense. And uh, I couldn't agree more with all of that. And <laughs> Good. So, uh, I think maybe next then we've talked about mood. We've talked about sort of the work environment and the home environment. Why don't we move next on to number three? Number three is food influences mood. And as we just saw, mood influences performance. So ultimately, we could also say that food influences performance. Here's how. This is a quote from Elizabeth Sommer, who is the author of the book Food and Mood. She's a registered dietitian. And she says, no other neurotransmitter is as closely linked to your diet as is serotonin. Serotonin is a feel-good neurotransmitter. It is a sleep regulator. It helps us pay attention. It is an overall very good chemical to have work for us in the brain. Some foods help the production of serotonin. Uh, some foods inhibit the production of serotonin. So by changing how we eat, we can actually sleep better at night give ourselves a little boost of positive emotion in the day. And that's ultimately what we're doing. When we go for that piece of chocolate, we're trying to get a little boost of positive emotion. So let's do it in healthier ways by boosting the serotonin production. Foods that are good for it are bananas, whole grain toast, oatmeal, blueberries, pears, grapefruits. So mainly Foods that are high in vitamins B6, B12, high in folate, and rich in carbohydrates. On the other hand, if we eat something that is higher in protein, then we would be facilitating the production of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine also helps with attention, and it helps with energy. So here we are. Let's say you are a manager again. You're having a lunch with your team, and then you have an afternoon meeting. If you're looking for high creativity, innovation, ideas in that meeting, 
go for a serotonin-inducing lunch. Whereas if it's been a long stretch, let's say you run an accounting firm and it's tax season, right? (laughs) Something (laughs) that's quite timely right now. So people are lacking energy and you don't necessarily need creativity during that meeting, but you need a little bit more pull or push. You need them to go that extra mile once again. You need the energy and the attention, then feed them a little bit more protein. Excellent advice. And I think that equally applies to situations where you've got a group, let's say, thinking of some of the other people that uh, I know, Marie-José that I mentioned that listen to this as well in terms of students and the like and uh, people that are at university. If you want to get together with a group of people, you really need to come up with some phenomenal ideas on this next you know, project that you're doing together. I think this type of advice is as relevant to you. I think this is, this is one of those other items that, and I know this is basically your main uh, message as well. The notion that there are these interactions. This one is uh, something that I think virtually nobody in those environments actually thinks about, that there's any relationship of you know food to these kinds of things. Exactly. So here's the perfect food plan. If you are a college student and it is exam season, mm-hmm. have an, and you're gonna, you know you're going to study late tonight have, because you have your exam tomorrow. Let me just clarify. Have an early dinner. Make it rich in protein so that you have energy while you are studying. Dopamine, protein equals dopamine. Dopamine increases energy and attention. So you want a high protein dinner. A little bit before bedtime, then you want some serotonin because serotonin is going to help you sleep through the night. So now now we're back to carbohydrates. And then in the morning, right before your exam, let's say your exam is in the morning, then depending on what type of exam it is, if you know that you're going to need creativity for that exam because it's going to be mainly long questions and you're going to have to write essays, things like that, serotonin breakfast. If you think that it's going to be more multiple choice and it's the energy that is going to be a problem because you're going to be tired, dopamine breakfast. Excellent. Very practical advice. And I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of people, I think, for years have linked food to physical performance, you know, as in, you know, sports. But very little attention has been given to the linkage or any linkage, quite frankly, uh, with regard to any of these things in terms of mood and uh, food and exercise and and like to or sleep to to Mm -hmm. actual uh, non-physical but uh, brain performance. And so excellent, excellent advice. So good stuff. So number four. Number four is that trying to attain your healthy weight is doomed to failure if you are sleep deprived. So we're still on the topic of food, but this time for people who are trying to lose weight. Here's why your attempts are doomed to failure if you are sleep deprived. Number one, people who are sleep deprived crave a source of rapid energy. And that is easily found in fat and sugar, and your body knows that. So it's going to drive you to exactly the kind of foods you know you should avoid. Number two, if you are sleep deprived, you will be in the worst mood. I've already pointed out that while you are sleeping, your brain is replenishing your serotonin levels. So serotonin makes you feel better. If you are not well balanced on your serotonin levels, you will be in a worse mood. If you are in a worse mood, you are more likely to not be able to self-regulate or to go for those foods, those comfort foods, again, usually high in fat and in sugar, also salt, that you know you should avoid. Number three, uh, when you are in a bad mood, you want a pick-me-up 
you find it at food, but then you feel even worse about yourself because you know that you just were defeated by a chocolate chip cookie, for example. So being sleep deprived gives you three strikes against attaining your healthy weight. So you should first try to fix your sleep problem. Try to, and I don't like to say fix the problem. Maybe I should just say develop healthier sleep habits. And if you do, it will be much easier to eat the right kind of foods, be drawn to fruits and vegetables as opposed to chocolate chip cookies and chips and fries because your mood and food interaction will be a healthier one and therefore easier to manage. At the beginning of the podcast, Coral, you've mentioned, it, you know, sometimes it's hard to do even more. You know, we tend to think that, you know, we kind of can eat on the go and get away with it, for example. Mm-hmm. It is easier to manage the whole lifestyle than it is to manage just a piece of it. Now, that aspect in terms of sleep has you know, obviously critically important. And I think you've just drawn amazing attention to the ways of this actually working and the impact that sleep deprivation can have on, you know, your mood, on your, the way that you have desires for food and the effect that that will have. What kinds of advice can you give with regard to ensuring that people are actually getting more sleep? Because there is a common experience, I think, of, you know, working very busy lives, also putting in a little bit of relaxation time in terms of TV or whatever in in the evening. And and it's also even celebrated, I think, in the working world and certainly in, I think, the university world as well. This whole notion of doing with less sleep is is almost celebrated. I know the whole business of, you know, in medicine and in terms of interns and the the whole culture seems to work against this notion of getting more sleep. What what kind of advice do do you have for addressing that. Well, I have a top 10 or top 12 initiatives that can help with sleep and we won't have time to, you know, that could be a podcast in itself. We can let get together just, and do that again. Yes, <laughs> okay, exactly. Well, let me just mention three very quick ones and I won't give all the background on each, but just for people to have something new to try. One is a, as I was mentioning earlier, a light nighttime carbohydrate rich low glycemic index snack. So people say, can you say that in English again, please? (laughs) So that means light. In other words, not a lot of food. Nighttime, about 45 minutes, 30 minutes before bed. Carbohydrate rich, meaning not focused on protein, so mainly uh, grains and fruits and vegetables. And then low glycemic index, so not something that has sugar in it, not something that will make your blood sugar levels spike up, something that will give it a slow and steady increase and then decrease throughout the night. So something like oatmeal, whole grain toast, blueberries, like I was mentioning earlier. These, this is a, a snack that will help you sleep better. Another exa- example of a strategy is to, throughout the day, do some breathing exercises where you spend twice as much time breathing out as you do breathing in. Doing that will reduce the, le- the, the amount of cortisol that your body produces during the day. And often what keeps people up at night is that stress, the stress hormone that is in their bodies that's not allowing them to fall gracefully into a good night's sleep. So reducing cortisol during the day through some breathing exercises will help you sleep better at night. And the third quick strategy, there are now some CDs that are available for purchase that have been engineered to help the brain produce theta brainwaves, which are the ones that we naturally produce right before we fall asleep. 
So just like when we listen to a lively piece of music, it adds a little kick in our step. That kind of music does the opposite and it helps us slow down naturally. And once your brain waves imitate the ones of the CD, what, what it's hearing on the CD, you can more easily pass out. And we will look to possibly do more on this topic and maybe a future episode that we can do together as well. But that's great, you know, quick advice. Intro. How to, yeah, how to really get uh, really addressing this challenge of sleep, because I think sleep is a huge, obviously, it has a huge impact, as you say. It's also just a huge problem that I think a lot of people have as well that they need to address. But in the context of the full list that we're going through today, it's probably sufficient to just mention what we mentioned just now and maybe go on to number five. We will actually revisit sleep a little later. But in the meantime, let's finish on that, that topic of food that we were on. And number five is about self-regulation not being the solution. So self-regulation, if you look at U.S. surveys, uh, and I think it's the same for Canada, self-regulation is the most wanted strength, but it is the one that is least often displayed. So when we do, and that's research by um, Chris Peterson, when we do strength surveys, it is the strength out of the 24 that we survey for that we find is least often in people's top five strengths. It is actually, I think, 23 or 24 in this country. But then when you ask people, what strengths do you not have that you wish you did, this is the one that's most often mentioned. Uh, and here's how self-regulation works. Research from Roy Baumeister from Florida State University explains that self-regulation works like a muscle. So in other words, just like a bicep, let's, let's pretend we're doing a bicep curl. We can do a certain amount of bicep curls given the weight that we have to lift. And then after a while, the muscle gets tired and we're no longer able to lift that same weight. Once we are no longer able to lift that same weight, we can put it down for maybe a minute and then we're able to do a few more reps. And if we do that day in and day out, over time, we are building stronger muscles, a stronger bicep, and we are able to do more reps with the same weight or do the same number of repetitions with a heavier weight. We are building the muscle. So self-regulation functions the exact same way. We can build it, but after we have exerted it, immediately it gets depleted. It is built over time. So now that we know that self-regulation works that way, we should try to plan a lifestyle where we will not need it all the time. So... Again, let's talk a little bit about sleep. If we know that we're going to have a worse mood because we are sleep deprived, then we already know that the next day we're going to have to self-regulate our potential uh, temper, not crises necessarily, but we're going to have to regulate our temper because we're going to be more irritable, less likely to be outgoing because we have a worse mood. So let's not put ourselves in a situation where we're going to be in, sitting in front of pizza and fries, for example, because we're not going to have the self-regulation to both do the mood and the fries the same day. So that's one example. Or the reverse. If we know that we will be tempted by some food or we, if we know that um, we have to go through a very vigorous exercise program tomorrow, this is going to require some self-regulation. So let's make sure that we have slept enough and that the mood is easy to uh, work on our side as opposed to against us. Very, very important uh, 
concept and and you explained it uh, very well and you've also introduced i think the next topic with regard to exercise itself i think that's actually number six exactly right carl look at that number six is about exercise funny how that works out right so exercise improves brain circuitry this time I am pulling from research done by John Raté at Harvard Medical School. We know that exercise facilitates the production of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine in the brain, uh, and maybe other neurotransmitters that we haven't discovered yet, or maybe that have been discovered but I just haven't read about at this point. Um, so through doing all of that, and also through the reduction of cortisol. I've already explained how cortisol is the stress, the long-term stress hormone that stays in the body and that prevents sleep, that, that's making us feel more tense. Not like, not like adrenaline, which is a short-term hormone. You know, there's a tiger right there, I got to run, for example. Mm -hmm. Cortisol is a long-term one. So through all of these neurotransmitters and chemicals in the brain, exercise can help increase attention, and it also facilitates new neural connections, and therefore for learning to stick. It's almost as if, and I don't know if by giving that example I am oversimplifying, but it will help people understand just the same. It's almost as if by having the blood circulate quicker throughout the body and therefore through the brain, we can fill like the very end of the synapses that we have, like the little end of the neurons and all of those connections in our brain. And by feeding those, they can stick to one another better. Does that help understand it? Yeah, that's a good visualization, actually, Marie-José. I think the other one that I was going to add is that, and I've mentioned it before in this podcast series as well, is that when you're at your absolute top notch physically, the whole notion of being, you know, really physically fit and right after exercise. I remember, you know, running, for example, you know, significant distances and I was in, you know, really good shape. Not only did it increase attention, not only did it, you know, obviously provide some additional neural connections, but even physical perception. I could smell things that you normally couldn't smell. The food yes. tasted, you know, totally different and especially really healthy food. So it's almost yes. like the human body has this ability when you're really in the top shape physically that it knows what it wants. So you can do, you know, the typical cafeteria style going and, and choosing the food you want. You can either know it at the level of the, you know, ingredients that you know it, Marie-José, but I think your body naturally knows, you know, what it desires the, the most. And so it feels to me like exercise sort of drives us to become what our bodies were meant to be in the first place. That's the other way that I think about this topic. Back to it's easier to manage the full lifestyle than elements on their own. You just mentioned how food tastes different. Your body craves healthier food once you exercise. So that allows us to close beautifully on the previous point, which is that when you exercise, you can eat more easily the right foods, so you don't need to rely on your self-regulation anymore. Therefore, self-regulation will be available for other things, other unexpected things, if you manage your exercise and your food properly. That's an excellent connecting of those two thoughts. Yeah, that, that reinforces that previous point well, I think. And you also, I know, have 
a quote that's related to this one that is also one of my favorites. So you might want to share that too. Yes, and, and that was probably very intuitive or maybe experiential on the part of John F. Kennedy when he said, physical fitness is not only one of the most important keys to a healthy body, it is the basis of dynamic and creative intellectual activity. Well, now we have a lot of research that proves it. There again, a reinforcement of things that we intuitively had some notion are related. It's nice to be able to see the research reinforcing it and also going beyond simply reinforcing those intuitive notions, but actually getting to the understanding of the actual biochemical mechanisms that underlie those systems as well, which you just uh, described so well. No, excellent. Okay, why don't we move on to number seven? We are back to the sleep topic. I promised you we would. We're already there. Lack of sleep is a major brain impairment. And I think this is already pretty clear from what we've said previously. Um, But let me just say a little bit more about that. The brain uses our sleep time not only to replenish bodily chemicals, but also to consolidate what we've learned during the day. It's almost as if because when we're sleeping, we are blocked out of any other stimuli, the brain can really work with the ones that it received during that day. So here's something important for students or managers. If you've learned something during the day or if your team was part of an important meeting today, you might want to go to bed a little earlier that night. Make sure you have your full eight hours of sleep so that your brain can consolidate and remember more the next day so that you can actually go and use it in the future. Here's another piece of research that was done in Australia this time that's very, very interesting. They have done uh, studies where they asked people, you know, randomly assigned people to two groups. One group was purposefully kept awake and the second group was asked to drink alcoholic beverages. It turns out that people and they and they gave both groups the same battery of tests, simple things. For example, like look at a computer screen and each time you see a five letter word, please press enter. They have found that people who have been awake for 17 hours are no better than the people who have been drinking alcohol whose blood level was at 0.05. Now, some people might say, well, 0.05, it's not that bad. You can still drive and be legal, so no big deal. All right, but after 24 hours awake, you do no better than people who are at 0.1. Now, Point one, you can't drive anymore. You're considered drunk and people wouldn't go to work drunk. But then people will object and say, well, I'm never awake for 24 hours straight. No, okay. But if you are missing an hour of sleep today, two hours tomorrow, an hour and a half the next day, it accumulates. Sleep debt is cumulative. So by the end of the week, you are no better than this person who was at point one blood alcohol level. Yeah, this again is one of those when we talk about sleep, that society has a, you know, celebration of, you know, sleep impairment as being somehow desirable. But this is a case where this is seriously dangerous. (laughs) You know, people have talked about driving and, you know, with some sleep impairment, as you point out, we have lots of rules regarding the amount of alcohol you can have in order to drive. We don't have any rules with regard to how much sleep you need to have or what level of sleep deprivation you should make sure that uh, you don't get to in order to to drive. But I would suspect that we've got a lot of people on the road that have, you know, high levels of sleep deprivation and are probably a lot more dangerous than 
people who are drunk. I mean, when you think of, you know, I've thought yes. about this research saying that people that are drunk, they generally still have their eyes open. And while their judgment may be impaired, uh, <laughs> at least they you know, see what's going on. not asleep, right? Which is really the danger of the sleep impairment. And I also wonder if there's an interaction, if you put the sleep deprivation together with actual alcohol, there may well be an accentuation of those, of the, uh, of the effect as well. But I think you make an excellent point, again, at reinforcing the importance of sleep in a society, I think, as I, I keep on reinforcing too, that doesn't seem to want to even, you know, consider this topic. And I bet you a lot of you that are listening are thinking, yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I can't really sleep that long because I'm too busy or, or there might just be a general cultural sensitivity about sleep being something that is not that necessary. And I think you're just reinforcing that it sure is. Yes, and and let me um, let me respond to a lot of what you said. I have three things that I'd like to point out at this point. You you mentioned uh, driving, and William Demont, who's one of the most illustrious sleep researchers to date, explains in a book called The Promise of Sleep. That is a very important and interesting book. He explains that there are more road accidents as a result of people being tired than a result of people being drunk. The only problem is that it's not illegal to sleep when you're tired. So, you know, this this is probably going to have to be tackled in other ways. One way is, and you've talked about that, the glamorization of being sleep deprived. For students, it probably means, oh, I study hard and I have a very active social life. For people at work, it means I am busy, important, needed, right? I don't mm -hmm. have time to sleep. I'm way too busy. When people kind of chant their glories like that, oh, I don't have time to sleep, what I hear is... I am living a second-rate version of my own life because I am never optimal at anything I do. And it's almost celebrating, you know, because I just said sleep is a major brain impairment. So it's almost like people are telling me, oh, I'm so proud of myself. I'm, I am making myself partly retarded on purpose. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I try to kind of nip this in the bud <laughs> as soon as I can when I work with people. But the, ne the next thing is people who are sleep-deprived make more mistakes they are less motivated, they are less resilient, more stressed, and therefore less productive. We've already talked about the relationship between being stressed and being productive or unproductive. And so therefore, if you are sleep deprived, of course you need 14 hours to do your work. Of right. course. So it's not because you're so busy or important or needed. It's because you're so unproductive during your day that you need all this time. I'm really passionate about this topic, <laughs> as you can tell. It shows. Yeah, no, you're so right. I mean, isn't the additional piece of research that I recall, and I don't remember who did the work, but looking at the relation between amount of sleep and life expectancy, also a significant finding? Yes, yes. And that's part of the things that I tell to people, you know, you don't have time to sleep, well, sleep a little more. And there you go, more time, you know, <laughs> you're going to have more time at the end of your life. And they're going to say, well, it's today that I need more time because I'm at work. When I'm retired, I won't need that much time. Well, if you do something you enjoy, maybe you can work a few more years because your body will not have degraded as fast. So you won't need to have saved up all that money. You will be able to still make money when you're 65. Now, of course, it's not something that's encouraging for every want to hear. <laughs> oh, I know. But then if they're not enjoying their careers, they need to listen to more of your podcasts, Carl, so that they can <laughs> find a career that they enjoy. <laughs> no, excellent, excellent point. And 
you know, related to that, unless we have more to talk about with regard to that one right now, is There's your next more, one. But let's move on. Right? I know there, there generally is on each of these topics, and I'm getting the sense that we probably will have to do another one or more of these together because we are also, this one's getting a little long as well. The next topic, I think, is, is kind of related to that as well. So uh, let's yes. get on to that one. Yes. Number eight is constant busyness impedes greatness. People are fascinated by the concept of peak performance, but they forget that by definition, a peak needs valleys. If you have no valleys, you have no peak. It's just flat, right? It's a plateau or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so if you take that into consideration, a valley is not an indulgence. A valley is a necessary step while you are preparing for the peak or while you are recovering from the previous peak. By cutting out the valleys, you are also cutting out the peak. And so you're just always functioning at an equal level throughout your days and months and years, which is a whole lot less interesting and a whole lot more tiring for your brain and body. And I also think about this notion of constant busyness. I have a sense that people, particularly in business, yes. have a sense of, you know, you're important if you have one meeting after another and all you're ever doing is having meetings, but yet we're not necessarily taking the time to truly reflect and think and read and then, you know, get into getting a, an integrated notion of where it is that you need to be going. And I just get the sense that, like you say, the notion of having peaks and then also having the valleys, having, in my mind, at least the notion of there are times you need to be engaged and busy, busy as in you know, the definition of busy in a business uh, often is uh, sort of meetings and the like, but then having those times to really reflect, those times to really think. One of the guys that started IBM always used to talk about the importance of think and thinking. In fact, created signs that were all around the company that were on desks all over that encourage people to think. And I regularly still consider that. In fact, as those who listen to this podcast series know that I actually arrange my schedule in such a way as I have my busy days, meaning, you know, conference calls, video calls, uh, and meetings all on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of the week. And my Mondays and Fridays are more reflective, are more you know, creative in many ways. I think this notion of thinking about a variety of aspects of busyness and being busy and realizing whether that is actually being, you know, productive and insightful and creative, I think is valuable to add to this notion that you've introduced in terms of going for that peak performance, going through the valleys and really refreshing, you know, yourself as well. And often people understand that constant busyness impedes greatness to a certain level, and after we talk about it, they understand it even more. What is stopping them from applying it, and you've kind of hinted at that already, is the corporate culture. If the organization where they work doesn't value that, doesn't understand that, it is difficult to apply it because you're not going to get the next promotion if you take breaks while everyone else thinks that taking breaks is a luxury. So true, and I think a lot of what we're talking about here is – either a culture in society in general, so things like sleep is influenced by that. I think the one that we're talking about here in terms of constant busyness, I think that's a culture within many businesses. And I think yes. that, so a lot of this that we're talking about here and the advice that you're giving, Marie Jose, is this notion of trying to disentangle and disengage from these kinds of cultural or business, inside a business cultural sort of views on these topics in order to actually be creative, healthy, 
healthy and sort of engaged. And uh, I think we're seeing that as a theme right through all of these that we're talking about. Yes. And it probably is also related to the next one that I know you want to talk about as well. Yes. Number nine is that multitasking is counterproductive. I was recently helping a client do some recruiting and People on their resumes or in their cover letter are proud to say, I am a great multitasker. And I'm thinking, "Mm, that's not a great selling feature for me. Here's why. Research done at Stanford University proved that uh, the brain can only process one thing at a time and that switching back and forth between two tasks requires additional seconds. While you're going from task A to task B and then back to task A, you're adding seconds to what you have to do. So it's actually making you slower, not faster. On top of that, it's teaching your brain to focus only in short segments. And over time, you'll get worse at tasks that require longer, more focused, continuous concentration. So you're really doing yourself a disservice by adding more multitasking. Sometimes it's necessary. And I'm not saying that if you're working on an an essay and the phone rings, you pick up the phone, it's a bad thing. I'm talking about constant multitasking, the the type of people who work with, you know, a computer screen in front of them, a TV screen in front of them so that they can follow maybe how the stocks are doing, take phone calls at the same time and email and BlackBerry, you know, all at once or, of course, not at once because the brain only does one thing at a time, but trying to manage this inside the same time frame. It's better to try to segment our things a little bit more so that our brain can be more focused. What's most interesting about this research is that the Stanford researchers were trying to find what gives multitaskers their edge, So they were looking to find what's giving them a competitive advantage, and they actually found that they are disadvantaged, the people who multitask a lot. So that is very interesting. When you're trying to find one thing and you find the complete opposite, it doesn't happen all that often. That's the case where we've talked about research that you've referenced during this entire session, oftentimes reinforcing the insight or the kind of guess that we already had. This was a counterintuitive finding. Yes. And uh, those are also often, you know, very, very helpful. Uh, On the topic of multitasking, I think one of the types of advice that I've given previously in this podcast series as well, and try to practice myself as well, is to identify the kinds of things that you need to do and whether that is an activity that you absolutely need to be single tasking on, in which case you turn off your cell phone, you turn off any other distraction because you really need to focus. And I think, and I absolutely agree with you on this one, that people don't do that enough for the kinds of work that they need to do that requires that. I think there are other instances, I mean, this is my own personal view, that there are other instances when multitasking is the either a necessity or even desirable given the kind of thing that you're actually doing. But my experience with working with, you know, my staff and with others is that, and and also have caught myself on this, and that is that when you don't do the level of thinking of saying, and the assumption is that you just leave on all forms of distraction, then you're sub-optimizing and all the things that you're talking about here, Marie-José, the, the whole notion of the, the stress level increasing, the time it takes you to get back to a task again, uh, taking more t- time than had you focused on it to, be, to begin, uh, begin with. I think there are, all of those things apply in situations where the uh, requirement is really one of single tasking, and that is what you needed to be doing, and now you've got all these other distractions. My advice is generally to first decide with the kind of work that you're about to do, 
mm-hmm. you know, the kind of thing that we're doing right here, right now. This would not work very well <laughs> as an interview if we were also answering instant messaging or some text messages coming across our cell phones and we had a They would definitely the impact <laughs> right? We yes. couldn't concentrate the way we were during this session to focus on this task. Saying that it would definitely impact quality. Right. But there are, and this is my sense of this, there are instances when you need to answer, for example, the scenario that I play is one of somebody pinging me on an instant message saying there's a, a server down, you know, who can go and deal with that? Or there's somebody that's uh, coming to see you. There are instances that if I were to just have a phone call or have a meeting on that, that would take a lot more time <laughs> than just simply answering with a single word or, or a couple of words or, or a sentence sort of response to uh, an instant message for example, or, or text message during a, a, a meeting, let's say. But there are only certain types of environments and certain types of tasks that I'm doing that are appropriate to that. And that I think the major point that you're making and that I think the one that we should make is the one that, again, there's a general assumption in society now for everybody to be multitasking all the time, to be walking down the street and, you know, dealing with their Blackberries or their iPhones and then running into other people and the like as well. Or uh, driving. Or driving. Exactly right. And I think that the point there, too, even while driving you know, we get into the whole topic again, what you had mentioned earlier as well of, of how much attention you're applying and that, um, you know, this whole notion of, of hands free, that being some holy grail now having cell phones and cars doesn't really work that way. You still have attention that you're taking away from the primary task as well. So I, I think it's an excellent point And I think we need to have a lot more insight into how best to work this way when you know, some of the time we are going to have interruptions. Certain types of things will naturally always be encroaching upon us. But I think we have to, as you're suggesting here, really give this some thought and make sure that things that need to be done, and a lot of things do, need to have the singular focus of not being interrupted to actually do it that way. And I think interruptions we will always have to deal with, and that's okay. But to put upon ourselves to multitask constantly is a different thing than being interrupted to. No, absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. All right. We're now at number 10. Number 10 is a little bit of a summary. It says that overworking can lead to underperforming. And we have already talked about how uh, people who overwork tend to sleep less. Um, People who sleep less are less alert, less able to focus, make more mistakes, and therefore less likely to perform well. People who overwork also tend to have poorer eating habits. Um, Hence, they have unbalanced brain chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, uh, which lowers their ability to pay attention and gives them worse memories. Three, people who overwork have less time to exercise, or sometimes they have the time, but they prefer to spend it in front of the TV because they're already spent by the time the day is over. So they exercise less, and therefore they have weaker brain power as well. And overworked individuals tend to have higher stress levels, and again, higher stress levels leads to lower productivity. So overall, overworking is a losing strategy. And to close, I have... A last quote from Brain Lee, and he says, The leader who exercises power with honor will work from the inside out, starting with himself. So the key is, you know, all of this good stuff about health and balance and emotions is not just for employees, it's for you too. 
a very, very insightful quote and a wonderful set of 10 items. And we could uh, go on like this for hours, it seems to me, Jose. (laughs) But I think in actual fact, we should probably wind this one up now. And we obviously, if you're willing, we should do another uh, one or or maybe even a couple of these because there's some drill downs that make sense on a number of these topics that we've uh, gotten to. But before we finish up, I did want to simply ask a little bit more about the work that you do and how others can find out more about you and the effort that you've also started. So I wonder if you could just give everybody the coordinates of how to get in touch with you and get to your material. Of course. My webpage is smartsandstamina.com. So smarts with an S and A-N-D, stamina.com. Right there on my page, you can sign up for a free newsletter. I send a new issue every second Wednesday. Each issue takes less than 90 seconds to read. I know we're in a fast-paced society, so you won't have to read for three minutes, just you know, a minute to a minute and a half. And each issue will be, one, research-based, two, a concrete application of the research, and three, something that you can try today for free or very low cost. So you don't need to have tons of resources to try these things out. You know, like I've mentioned today, uh, tons of tips, you know, try a light nighttime snack, for example, that will be inducing serotonin and these type of things that you can just try out and see if they work for you. So that's my newsletter. um, And you will find on my webpage numbers, email addresses, and the rest of what you need. Excellent. And I highly recommend that people do that. I'm now also a person that receives your newsletter and finds it very, very valuable. So congratulations on that and the overall initiative. This is a, you're doing some really, really great work. And I'd like to thank you, Marie-José, for this session, for all the great work you do. And like I say, we might uh, pick this up again sometime in the future. And I'd like to thank everyone who is listening to this session as well. Reinforce that you can provide feedback on this session in iTunes, in the Zoom store, on the show notes site, and I might just mention that we'll put the information with regard to the top 10 lists and quotes and the like, as we usually do in the tab there on the site as well, and that's at lifehabits.net. So that's it. Thanks very much, Marie-José. It was my pleasure. I always welcome the chance to share about my work, Carl. So thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed our time. Great stuff. And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye for now.